welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. Your time is valuable, and so is mine, and that's why I release these brief episodes, focus on a single topic, get you in, get you out, teach you something. Today, let's talk about the most common cause of noisy breathing in newborns and infants, laryngomalacia. You've all seen this, or should I say you've all heard this, and you'll hear the symptoms of strider and noisy breathing, often positional, and it can impact growth and development. Now, I always thought it was just because airways are small and they're floppier and therefore noisier, but all infants have small airways and all of their cartilage is soft, so there's more to the picture. So why does this happen? Well, it could be a neurologic dysfunction. You could have abnormal tone of the laryngeal nerve. You might have an imbalance of demand supply during inhalation in some infants. And reflex isn't a direct cause, but approximately 60% of infants with laryngomalacia do also have gastroesophageal acid reflux disease. And we know that reflux can irritate and swell the upper airway, potentially worsening obstructive symptoms. So the incidence is unknown, but it's probably about 1 in 2 to 3,000 infants. But it might underestimate it because lots of mild cases don't actually present clinically, and they're not diagnosed endoscopically. In the past, we thought there was a male predominance, but it's equally common in female infants. And black and Hispanic infants may have a higher risk compared with white infants. Low birth weight has also been suggested to be a contributing factor. So when you're looking at an infant with possible laryngomalacia, you need a very detailed birth history. So were there any surgical procedures or intubations? Parents need to give you information about breathing difficulties, especially noisy breathing or episodes of apnea. Noisy breathing that worsens with feeding or while lying down may indicate laryngomalacia. You should also ask detailed questions about feeding habits, weight gain, or if the child's experiencing failure to thrive. There are, of course, other causes of noisy breathing in infants that are on the differential. Unilateral vocal cord paralysis often happens after surgery. So if the kid's not had surgery, it's pretty much less likely. Bilateral vocal cord paralysis, which is twice as worse, presents with biphasic strider and may require tracheostomy if respiratory distress is significant. Laryngeal papillomatosis can cause a hoarse cry and upper airway obstruction, and it also appears in infancy. Subglottic hemangiomas are fortunately rare, but they can cause expiratory strider. Hemangiomas distributed like a beard are suggestive of this. Subglottic stenosis happens via scarring in the subglottic region due to a previous intubation. So strider may be present in these infants, but it doesn't typically change with position, and the child's history would include a NICU stay and an intubation. Tracheomalacia and bronchomalacia can coexist with laryngomalacia. Expiratory airway sounds are commonly heard in addition to the strider, and diagnosis needs scope. We'll talk more about those in a moment. Vascular ring is a rare cause of airway obstruction in infants, and you'd have feeding difficulties in strider. The best way to diagnose this is through imaging like CT scans. And finally, you should always think about foreign body aspiration, even in a child who is not eating solids yet. Remember, an older sibling could feed them something. I have seen this before. So an infant is in respiratory distress after being unaccompanied or the symptoms are persistent. You should always think about a foreign body, especially in the acute setting. 
The physical exam of a child with possible laryngomalacia focuses on the airway and breathing, naturally. Make sure that the nasal passages are patent. You don't want to miss coenoatresia. The oral cavity should be explored for cleft lip, cleft palate, glossoptosis, Pierre Robin sequence, or micronathia. Obviously, all of those facial and oral abnormalities can contribute to breathing and feeding difficulties. You want to check out the neck for masses or vascular lesions. And many infants have hemangiomas, but I mentioned this before. If you see them in a beard-like distribution, worry about airway hemangiomas. So if you have an infant that has some intermittent noisy breathing on inspiration, and sometimes it's worse with feeding, and when they lay down, you should really think about laryngomalacia. And if the infant is thriving and growing well, not having any apnea or color change, you can kind of wait it out. But if you want to make the diagnosis definitively, you will need to have an otolaryngologist perform an awake, flexible, fiber optic laryngoscopy. That's the primary diagnostic tool for infant strider in general. You get a comprehensive view of the oropharynx, the supraglottis, the glottis, the subglottic area, and the hypopharynx. So infants with laryngomalacia on scope will have some specific anatomical abnormalities. They'll have shortened areopiglottic folds, an omega-shaped epiglottis, and or redundant arytenoid tissue. And again, the awake, flexible fiber optic laryngoscope is the gold standard for diagnosing laryngomalacia. The kid is awake and breathing, and that allows you to assess the dynamic collapse of the supraglottic airway during respiration. In a child with more severe symptoms or you're worried about tracheomalacia, direct laryngoscopy, and a diagnostic bronchoscopy in the OR under general anesthesia may provide a more comprehensive look at the airway and the upper aerodigestive tract. So you'll scope down to the main stem bronchi in this standpoint. Sometimes you get a triple scope which is flexible laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy, and upper endoscopy. So three endoscopists together. I don't know if there's a discount. And this is important when there's severe symptoms or you have concern about synchronous airway lesions. Direct laryngoscopy can also be a prelude to surgical intervention if you need it. Uh, speech therapists could be particularly valuable if there's issues with swallowing or feeding, if you're concerned about aspiration or swallowing deficits. Uh, sometimes they'll do a modified barium swallow study. Sleep studies can be particularly helpful to look at symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, especially in older symptomatic infants. As I've alluded to before, fortunately, most children resolve on their own by about 12 to 18 months of age. So this management is conservative, includes upright feeding, anti-reflux therapy, so alterations to how you feed, burp, and position. And no study has yet shown that proton pump inhibitors improve laryngomalacia symptoms, but they're still widely used. What's important to remember is that the majority of infants don't need any intervention. However, there is a small proportion of infants that do have more severe symptoms, like poor weight gain, feeding difficulties, obstructive sleep apnea, severe breathing symptoms, they'll need a procedure called supraglottoplasty. And so how is that done? Well, they could use lasers or cold steel or microdebridement, and it's really tailored to the individual patient's anatomy. So you could divide shortened areopiglottic folds, you can remove some redundant arytenoid mucosal tissue, 
you could do an epiglottopexy or a combination of some of these. And you really obviously don't want to scar the infant's airway or cause glottic stenosis. Superglottoplasty is highly effective. 95% do great and see measurable and significant improvement in their laryngomalacia symptoms. Only about 5% need some sort of revision, and a higher risk of that is seen in patients that were under two months of age when they got the initial procedure or have neurologic or cardiac comorbidities. Neurologic comorbidities have the highest rate of revision surgery. Maybe up to three out of five patients will need a trach due to ongoing airway obstruction. Aspiration after superglottoplasty is the main risk, but it's rare and not significantly associated with the procedure itself. And let's not forget the main reason that most of you have heard of laryngomalacia. It's because a parent was worried about it. It can be scary to have a baby who is breathing noisily. The fear in the back of your head is that the baby could stop breathing and die. It's real. I've heard it personally. Ultimately, providing reassurance, guidance, close follow-up, and helping the parent understand what they're doing well can go a long way into making sure that you're not missing anything else and you're appropriately monitoring the infant with potential laryngomalacia. Refer to ENT if you're unsure of the diagnosis or if you feel that it will benefit the patient. It may seem a little barbaric, but an awake bedside fiber optic scope isn't actually that big of a deal. All right, so here's some summary points. The majority of patients with laryngomalacia will outgrow it by 12 to 18 months. Diagnosis can be suspected clinically, but awake fiber optic flexible laryngoscopy is definitive. Severe symptoms should be monitored and include recurrent cyanosis or respiratory distress, apnea, and failure to thrive. These need further workup, including many times direct laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy to rule out other airway abnormalities. Surgery is generally only indicated in patients with severe laryngomalacia, and it's called supraglottoplasty. It's generally well-tolerated and highly effective. Patients with neurologic comorbidities or congenital cardiac disease and those less than two months of age are more likely to require revision surgery for relief of ongoing symptoms. All right, so that's it for this episode. Hopefully you learned something new about laryngomalacia. If you have any other suggestions for topics, send them my way. I'll take emails, comments on the blog, direct messages on X or Twitter, threads, Facebook, whatever channels you want to use. My goal is to make sure that you are ready for your next ED shift with up-to-date information that's evidence-based and ready to deliver to patients and families. If you have the time, leave a review on your favorite podcast site. That helps with discovery so that more people can listen and learn. And share this episode in the show with your colleagues. I'd love to hear what they think as well. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.